Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. One of Myanmar's most powerful ethnic armed alliances launched a coordinated attack on the 27th of October, attacking a dozen military outposts in northern Shan State along the country's eastern border with China. Codenamed Operation 1027, the plan is to assert and defend territory against Myanmar's military incursions, eradicate oppressive military dictatorship and combat online fraud along the border, according to a statement from its organisers, the Three Brotherhood Alliance. According to a statement released on the 31st of October, the Alliance has so far seized more than 80 military bases and taken over the border post of Xin Shui Hao, while more than 100 military soldiers have surrendered to resistance forces. Footage posted by Alliance members on social media indicates that they've also seized large caches of military weapons and ammunition. My guest today is Debbie Stoddard. Debbie is an active promoter of human rights in Burma and the ASEAN region. In 1996, she founded the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. During her 32-year career, she's worked as a journalist, community educator, governmental advisor and trainer in Malaysia, Australia and Thailand. So Giselle, first up, we need to be clear that experts already agreed the junta did not control most of the territory in Burma. This illegal junta was never in control of the situation. But what we saw from Operation 1027 with the Three Brotherhood Alliance is that these uh, resistance forces started to be very coordinated in clearing out junta bases in their area. So instead of controlling the area and then being attacked by junta from the bases and then trying to fight back for territory that was lost, Operation 1027 was designed to coordinate a, a very comprehensive offensive to drive out completely military bases from certain areas. And since that operation was launched on 27th of October, we've seen um, force, resistance forces coordinating to drive out or to, to basically get rid of about 180 military bases of the junta. So they're really clearing out the junta from many parts of the country, particularly in ethnic border-based areas. Having said that, um, the junta itself was in trouble when it started the coup in February 2021 because they did not have popular support. And what they saw, what we saw was uh, military junta members actually defecting to join the resistance because they couldn't stomach the extreme brutality and violence that was being inflicted across the country. So um, finally, uh, the junta, after putting on a brave face and resorting to airstrikes because it was difficult to move troops on the ground, um, have, are starting to admit that this is a problem and that they are losing ground fast. I think for most of us who are concerned about civilian protection, we're really worried about what happens when the empire strikes back. The junta is gearing up for a massive offensive to 
basically more launch more airstrikes on civilian targets throughout the country. So this is what we're concerned about, that they are going to ramp up airstrikes and they're going to go after civilian targets in order to hurt resistance forces. Let's talk about the Three Brother Alliance. Who Who is in the uh, the Three Brotherhood, sorry, Alliance? Who is in the Brotherhood? Where did they come from? Because it seems like this is a significant turning point in um, the struggle. I know you've said that it looks like the military junta is going to mount a response. And before we talk about that and, of course, the civilian um, crisis that is going to emerge from that, I just want to try and understand the development on the resistance side um, and who this group is. Um, firstly, the Three uh, uh, Brotherhood Alliance uh, is basically um, an alliance of existing organized uh, armed groups, the Arakan Army, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, and the Ta'ang National Liberation Army. And what has happened after these alliance after this alliance launched 1027 offensive, we've seen that more and more PDFs, local people's defense forces, and other ethnic armed organizations, ethnic resistance organizations, um, are joining the offensive. That's why it's growing in success and growing in strength. So some people see this as part of the end game, the beginning of the end for the illegal junta. But um, we know that the junta is not going to give in easily, especially uh, the leader of this illegal junta, General Min Aung Lang, who is the one who initiated the coup because he didn't want to lose power and influence. So this is, um, this is something we need to understand, that uh, when the coup started in February 2021, a lot of ethnic armed organizations that were already fighting with the national military who formed this legal junta, um, many of these armed groups then, and then political groups became ethnic resistance organizations coordinating with each other. And, um, and that's why uh, the resistance, the armed resistance has been successful in their military operations because they were also joined by junta members, by police and soldiers who defected um, and abandoned the junta. So we do have, um, these are all pre-existing groups. Some have been, uh, have been in armed struggle for decades. So these are seasoned fighters. And what we've seen now is the power of unity and coordination. Who is funding them? Who is arming them? You, you've described that as um, these people are armed, they're being armed. Do we have a sense of where their military support is coming from? Well, um, despite uh, efforts by the National Unity Government, which is made up of elected members of parliament, to get international support, um, and to recognize that these fighters are essentially the national army, uh, most uh, large, influential, and powerful governments have refused to provide weapons. What we have seen basically is um, a contra of basically a crowdfunding by the diaspora, by people who are living and working overseas outside of the country, 
or even people who have already settled for many years in Western countries, fundraising for both humanitarian and resistance and armed resistance work. Um, but at the same time, some of these uh, ethnic resistance organizations are in areas which are rich in natural resources. So they've been actually um, uh, selling natural resources in order to raise funds to, to, for the resistance, for the armed resistance. That's quite extraordinary. Um, ASEAN is still calling for peace. Um, but are they proposing anything more? Are they trying to force the junta to enter into negotiations with the Three Brotherhood Alliance or with the National Unity Government um, or with anybody? Or what, what, is, what does ASEAN actually mean when it is calling for peace in Burma? Well, basically uh, what we face is not just ASEAN but the rest of the international community who just want to have a standard traditional approach, which is to get everyone to the dialogue table and negotiate some kind of power sharing agreement. The reality is that that's what the international community and ASEAN supported back in 2010. And this is what caused a coup to happen uh, in 10, year, 10 years into the transition. And we see that happening time and again in Sudan, in a whole bunch of other places where a so-called pragmatic inclusive power sharing agreement is simply buying time for armed groups to gear up and try and grab power. So I think what is important to note in this revolution is that the young people who have really put their lives on the line, both in terms of armed resistance and political resistance, have actually called for a transformation, a political transformation, no power sharing. This is really no power sharing with a, a, a military regime that has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. What they want is accountability and what they want is a human rights-based approach. So this whole politically corrupt and compromised notion of having peace talks hasn't really worked. Burma has been in peace talks for 30 years. This is what's happened. Um, and every time there were peace talks, it actually caused more conflict and attack on civilians. It featured more conflict and attacks on civilians. So um, the movement is saying we are not interested in so-called inclusive dialogue where an illegal junta committing war crimes is actually recognized and legitimized at the dialogue table. And we have already seen um, Karen leaders. Karen have been engaged in a conflict with this junta. They've been resisting this junta for nearly 70 years, so seven decades. And they're saying, no, compromise hasn't worked. And basically, this illegal regime needs to surrender. It's time to have real change in the country. So just pandering to the junta simply buys them more time to consolidate themselves and launch more attacks. At this point, if they, if if ASEAN and the international community is really serious about this, they need to impose quite high-level and targeted effective sanctions to prevent the junta from gaining access to revenue and weapons. They have to. We actually have to disarm this junta in order for peace to begin. 
and on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. My guest today is Debbie Stoddard, the founder of the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. We're discussing the recent strike on the military junta by the armed resistance currently working as the Brotherhood Alliance. And while all of these negotiations are going on and the international community continues to turn a blind eye in much the way that you described, there is a refugee and humanitarian crisis on foot. I know it's hard to imagine when our headlines are only um, talking about the situation in Palestine, but there is another genocide happening and that is in is in. Myanmar, but we're seeing the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. My question is, are they mostly Rohingya or are they uh, civilians of all ethnicities and what is actually happening in relation to people fleeing the country? Before the coup started, there were several, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of people already displaced by pre-existing conflicts who still were trying to get home. Now, since the coup began, there's anything, well, the, the UN agencies conservatively estimate close to 2 million people displaced by conflict in the country. But organizations, community-based organizations on the ground actually say the number is much higher and includes people who have been displaced several times. They may basically, they lost their home like two or three times in the past three years. So that's the kind of uh, magnitude we're talking about. And there's both visible and invisible refugees all spread out all across the region. So the concern now is that when the junta tries to strike back against and to against the losses that it suffered because of Operation 1027, uh, civilians are going to be the main targets and that's going to cause even more displacement. At this time, in Arakan State, in where the where Rohingya IDPs still are, there are also Rakhine and other uh, nationalities uh, who are displaced because of Cyclone Mocha in May 20, May this year. The junta is still preventing food and medical supplies from reaching these people. So there are now pockets of the country where the junta has control. They've stopped and prevented. Um, uh, transportation of life-saving food and medical supplies in order to um, uh, undermine armed and, and civilian resistance. And people actually can't even buy food even if they have the money to do so simply because there are no supplies available locally. This is quite a crisis situation and the international community is basically trying to apply Band-Aid uh, to uh, to a gaping wound when they say, let's talk, let's have some kind of dialogue. They really need to put their foot down and say, this cannot be allowed to continue. And they need to deploy all political and economic leverage at their disposal to stop this situation from getting worse. These refugees, they're going into Indonesia, India, Bangladesh. Uh, I mean, about a thousand people last month made it to Aceh. 
What can you tell us about the refugee crisis in relation to the receiving states? I mean, um, Indonesia, for example, is not a signatory to the UN 1951 Convention on the Rights of Refugees, yet they're still taking quite a number of refugees that are coming out of Myanmar at the moment. Well, the the Rohingya refugees that arrived by boat in the past few weeks um, have are actually people who fled the camps in Cox's Bazaar because they are facing particular pressures and difficulties in Cox's Bazaar, including um, the pressure to re- be repatriated back. They might be uh, forced repatriation back to Arakan State, even during this type of heightened conflict. So the junta is trying to force the Rohingya refugees back so they can be used as pawns in their broader um, attacks and persecution of uh, uh, the Arakan army, for example. So we, we've we seen what is disturbing about this is that we've seen that in the amongst the thousand refugees that came by sea, a very perilous boat journey, um, more than half women and children, and actually about 196 of that 1,000 were unaccompanied minors. This means that parents were willing to risk sending their children by boat to Indonesia or Malaysia because they recognized the situation was getting increasingly worse and increasingly dangerous. We've also seen on the border more and more displaced people trying to send their children to camps closer to the Thai border so that they can get some safety and they can restart their local schooling. You know, many of these camps, one of the priorities is to set up some kind of makeshift school so that the children can resume their education. And so we we actually need to understand that if this region is serious about um, uh, fulfilling their obligations under the Convention of the Rights of the Child, it doesn't matter that they haven't signed the Refugee Convention, they at least need to commit to the safety of these children and their access to basic rights. So, you know, the, this is a crisis that has been building up. It didn't happen overnight. But if ASEAN is really serious about the situation, if Australia and neighboring countries are serious about human security, the first thing we need to focus on is civilian protection. And that includes civilian protections of people from Burma, Rohingya and any other ethnic nationality that have entered, have been able to reach uh, uh, our territory. If, If they've come within our country's borders, we have an obligation to offer them civilian protection and make sure that they they have access to their basic needs. If they are down near the border, on the other side of the border, at least we should allow community-based organizations to deliver cross-border aid to the people who need it. I have many... Um... Burmese or people from Myanmar made it all the way to Australia. I don't. I don't think they have. I don't think they've come this far. Do your that, statistics show you otherwise? We 
firstly, we need to recognize that there have been people from Burma arriving as refugees in Australia since the 60s and 70s. So there have been several generations, def different waves of over time of people from Burma arriving as refugees or seeking asylum in Australia. And there have been people who have been received, a small group of people have been received by Australia since the coup started and allowed to stay as refugees. The reality is that Australia has actually been so allergic to receiving refugees, even though it needs a big, slightly bigger population than it has. And if they are that reluctant, then they should contribute to durable solutions that allow refugees access to safety. That means we get we need to actually support and fund cross-border aid so that IDPs, internally displaced people, camped along the borders with Thailand and other country, neighboring countries, still have access to life-saving aid so that they, they don't they're not pushed into trying to cross the border to other countries or trying to get on the boat to get to Australia or Indonesia or Malaysia or wherever. Well, Debbie, the crisis is very, very deep. Uh, the humanitarian crisis is about to get worse. Um, you're, you mentioned earlier in the discussion you're fearful that the junta will reorganise itself, re-establish um, control once again and, and start an even greater offensive against the civilian population. Every time I've spoken to you about this issue, you've been extremely hopeful and positive about the resistance. Do you remain hopeful and confident in the resistance's ability to push back the junta? Every time this junta uh, commits mass atrocities and, in, and, and intensifies brutality against the civilian population, the population understands that they need to win because they cannot tolerate to have more generations of people having to deal or having to live under such brutality. So I think the, res the resolve is there that we need to get rid of this junta and we need to get, uh, we need to dismantle the military machine that perpetuates these types of atrocities. But at the same time, and people are actually really happy and jubilant that there has been a pushback, that this junta has finally had to admit that it's taken a few bad hits and it's not in a good situation. However, we need to understand that the junta in its dying days will be very desperate and even more cruel. And the international community needs to step up right now, raise this, highlight this, prioritize this at the UN Security Council, and put in place very clear measures to discourage this junta from committing more atrocities. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you wanted to add? A lot of people are feeling that a lot of people in the resistance, the political resistance and the armed resistance are feeling vindicated. Their resistance, the, what they have been doing is finally paying off. But in order to sustain that, we really need to ensure that the international community steps up in terms of civilian protection and in terms of preventing this junta from doing more damage. That was Debbie Stoddard, the founder of the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma, 
speaking to us today about the current situation in Myanmar, Burma. Just on Accent of Women's coverage of the growing humanitarian crisis and war in Palestine. While the last two weeks have focused on other issues around the world, Accent of Women continues to support the struggle for Palestinian liberation from Israeli occupation. The ceasefire is now broken and this remains a current and active campaign calling for a permanent ceasefire. Accent of Women will continue to cover this issue as well as other humanitarian issues and struggles for liberation around the world. I remind you to look out for rally details and solidarity activities in your local cities. Now is the time to show our governments that the people stand with Palestine and that they need to as well. And that's all we've got time for on today's program. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.